0: We're in Luke chapter 2 this morning, Luke chapter 2. So, uh, this has been a long time for me, but I remember it clearly. Uh, when you have your first child, a few weeks after the birth of this, this baby is when reality really starts to sink in. It, it's not at first. At first, I mean, it was definitely a shock to it, but it takes a little while before you realize oh, my goodness, I've got a baby and I can't take him back, <laughs> like he's, he's, he's ours, right? We're stuck with this child, and of course we loved it, but it was like it, there's this, 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 uh, this, this sense of reality that sinks in, and you start to get into a rhythm, and you start to realize you, you all of a sudden have no time for yourself ever again as you're caring for this baby, uh, and time actually gets more valuable because you have so much less of it to spare, And what happens is your life begins to really just sort of reorient around the baby's needs, right? And it was really no different for Mary and Joseph. Jesus was, of course, a real human baby with real human baby needs. And that's where we're going to begin our text this morning in Luke chapter 2. Beginning in verse 21. So baby Jesus is here, right? We talked about that last week. Now now what? Okay, so verse 21. And at the end of eight days when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. So Mary and Joseph at this point are a little over a month into parenting Jesus, and at this point you probably couldn't tell much difference between Jesus and any other baby they were following the custom of their people the custom of the of the Jews the law of God as well and and taking him to the temple Uh, this was a routine event and the temple was probably busy with a lot of people doing similar things they are likely in the court of women And Luke tells us that they are approached by two people. Verse 25, it says, Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. We know very little about Simeon. He's not a priest uh, or an expert on the law. We assume he's probably an older gentleman because we assume that he's been waiting a long time for God's promise to come true based on the way he speaks and He played a small but special little role in the birth narrative of Jesus because we're told by Luke that the Holy Spirit informed Simeon that he would see the Savior before he died. So in other words, if you think about it, Simeon's bucket list had one thing on it. His whole life was made complete simply because he sees Jesus. And so Luke is telling us that this is a baby who has not only changed the lives of Mary and Joseph, but as Simeon prophesies, this is a baby that will change the entire world. The whole world is going to reorient Around this child. Simeon prophesies that Jesus will lead to the rising and falling of many. And we'll talk more about what that means in a few minutes, but that has certainly been true. Just if you, whether you believe it or not, Jesus' birth, life, death, resurrection has had a tremendous impact on history. So that's the first person that approaches. Mary, and Joseph, and Jesus. The second one, verse 36, Luke tells us about the prophetess Anna. He says, there was a prophetess Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of Him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Now, we don't know much about Anna either, uh, except, of course, her name means grace. Um, She belonged to one of the so-called lost tribes of Israel. Interesting, also her father's name is similar to the name that Jacob gave the place where he wrestled with God and said, I have seen God face to face, yet my life was preserved. So it's a little interesting connection, right? Anna seeing the Son of God, right? So, and then as a prophet, she, like Simeon, is receiving some special revelation from God. Luke says that she was very old and. It's difficult to tell. Either she's 84 years old or it has been 84 years since her husband died, which would make her like 105. Um, but either way, she's lived in the temple uh, for a very long time or spent every possible minute there. That's also hard to tell what, what's going on. But the most important thing that we learned from Anna's brief encounter with Jesus is that this moment also shapes her life. It's what she's been waiting for her entire life. And she can't wait to tell other people about it, right? So that's how the text ends, is that she goes and tells everybody about Jesus. And so I want us to think about a couple of things today. So Simeon and Anna, they seem to understand that seeing Jesus is both a special event for them, but it's also a reality that is being prepared for all people, or at least all kinds of people, right? Jesus came specifically for both Gentiles and Jews, and even male and female, right? There's, there's, a, there's a broadness to what, what Luke is showing us about how people are responding to Jesus, his birth, and so what Luke is saying here, I think, at the end of the birth story, is this. Jesus changed the lives of Mary and Joseph, absolutely. But Jesus did not belong to Mary and Joseph. Jesus came for all God's people. His birth changed everything for the entire World. So this is not just an old man and an old lady in the temple who walk up to Mary you know, and tell her, oh, what a cute baby you have, right? This is God keeping His promises to people who were desperately waiting for a Savior, and some of them had physically been waiting for a long time So you understand Jesus was an answer to a promise. Jesus was an answer to prayer. He was Simeon's entire bucket list. Like, now I can die, I have seen the Messiah. He was the singular hope of a widow whose husband had been dead for at least 60 years. Well, think about that. Anna would have still been a very young woman, probably early twenties, when her husband died, and yet she never remarried. You think possibly she still wanted to be married, to have a family, and that you know you may be like, well, that's not, you can't say that, but. Uh, The pressure, at least, would have been tremendous, especially in that culture. As a result of what she has lived through, she was probably extremely poor. And still, she has spent the vast majority of her entire life worshiping and fasting and praying for the Savior to come. And because God sovereignly ordains how the prayers of his people mix into his providential plans, according to lots of Scripture. It's very likely that he wove this into the reason why Jesus came when he came, because of Anna's prayers, among other things. All of this serves as a confirmation for me that Jesus is who he said he was, that he is the promised Messiah, And I think it also serves as an example for us because we're supposed to think of this period that we're living in now, the last 2,000 years, and whatever the future holds, this is a period of waiting. We, as Christians today, are waiting on the return of our King Jesus. But my question for you, and this is really a heart question, okay? So I want you to think about this with me. Do we really... Do we really think about the life now that we are living as waiting on Jesus? Is that what shapes our lives? Now, I'm going to be honest with you. Most of the time, I tend to be preoccupied with the immediate future and all the things that I would like to have or that I would like to experience. And so right now, I'm thinking about this coming year and my goals and my plans and you know, what I would like to do, what I would like to experience, what I would like to have. Most of us have a picture in our head of what we want our life to look like before we die. Right? I mean, I think we do. Maybe you don't. Some people spend more time thinking about this than others. Some, some are more kind of in the moment, in the present. But future-oriented people like me, we tend to think a lot about five years from now, ten years from now. What's it going to be like when my kids graduate? What's it going to be like when they get married? We have grandkids and all of these things. The things that we would like to experience in this life, though it is short. And the truth is, we do this and then we're also easily disappointed either because things don't always work out as expected, very, very seldom do, or because we get what we wanted and then we find out it didn't satisfy us the way we thought it would. But Simeon and Anna are a reminder to me that there is one way to never be disappointed. And only really one way. Because if all I ever hoped for was Jesus, I would never be disappointed again. If all I expected or anticipated was the return of my Savior, I would never be disappointed because He will return. He will fulfill His promises, every single one of them, just as He fulfilled His promises to Israel the first time around. And so the simplest way to say this is just simply that Jesus is enough. Jesus is enough. Something about the Christmas season, we talked about this some last Sunday. This season is great at sort of churning up discontentment in us, isn't it? I mean, maybe there's some cabin fever, you know, there's, there's just a lot of things going on. But for a lot of people, it's the most depressing time of the year, ironically, because it can be kind of a stark reminder of all the things you don't have. So if it's family, let's say family. I mean, the holidays a big time for family, right? But what if your family is a mess? I mean... Family relationships can be the most tense of all relationships, and, and what if, you know, everybody that you wish you could have seen and wish you could have been on good terms with this year is just not happening? You're just not going to see them, or you did and it was terrible. Or maybe it's a spouse, right, like Anna, maybe you are a widow or a widower, and Or perhaps your home is broken from divorce and maybe it wasn't your fault, right? Or maybe you want to be married, you're single and it hasn't happened yet. Or you don't want to be married, you wish people quit bothering you about it, right? There's lots of different scenarios there. Maybe it's children. Maybe you can identify with Anna as day by day she watches other people come into the temple with their happy families and beautiful babies and they they pass her by. could be a job. You see other people working and enjoying the fruit of their labors, enjoying the job that they have, and you don't like yours, or you don't have one, and nothing seems to be turning up for you. You know, the problem is not that any of those things are bad things to want. Most of the things that we want in life are generally good or at least harmless. But it's not just that we want them, is it? It's that we become frustrated by not having them. And what does that create inside of us? Creates jealousy. Envy. Or even just discontentment, right? But I'm telling you, and I think what scripture is saying is that Jesus is enough. Jesus is enough for the person who finds himself in a career that you didn't dream about as a child. Jesus is enough for the mom who spends countless hours doing underappreciated work for uncooperative children and husbands. Jesus is enough for the children who didn't get everything they wanted for Christmas this year. And that may sound like I'm over-spiritualizing things. I know that's what it sounds like. But y'all, this is actually very, very practical. Because finding Jesus to be enough, it helps us in at least two situations. And we can follow the pattern that Simeon sets up for us when he says that Jesus is going to be responsible for the rising and falling of many. In other words, Jesus is going to humble the proud and he's going to raise up the fallen. Okay? So I want us to think about what that means. What is life like for the proud? What's it like when it seems like or you've convinced yourself that you have everything that you want? On the one hand, you might experience greed, right? You may begin to feel entitled to to what you have or even entitled to, to more because the Bible tells us that it's never actually going to feel like it's enough, It's kind of like the the post-Christmas hangover that a lot of us feel, where, let's say, you got everything that you wanted, and two days later, you're bored with it. But sometimes pride looks different, right? We can also experience this, this false sense of guilt where we convince ourselves that maybe, well, I'm unworthy. I shouldn't have this stuff. I feel guilty for having this thing or this, you know, whatever. And, and we may think that we're being spiritual by focusing on our unworthiness. But actually, I would suggest to you that in both cases, both guilt and greed, we're making it all about us. We're focused on the gifts and not the giver, which means that the stuff has become more glorious than Jesus. When really the stuff is supposed to remind us that God is good, that everything comes from Him. And so both guilt and greed kind of reveal our hearts. They tell us that that Jesus is not enough for us. Because contentment, which is kind of the middle of the road, it comes as a response to God's generosity. We receive His gifts with joy, and we know that He's the giver. So that's kind of the first application. The second is this. What is it like when we don't have everything that we want? Or even that we feel like we need? In those situations, we may begin to feel resentment. We may begin to hate the people who have what we want. Your heart may begin to fill with bitterness or anger. And when that happens, not only is Jesus not enough for us, he becomes the opposite of what we want. We begin to hate God because we believe that He's holding out on us. You understand, that was the motivation behind the Garden of Eden. Like The lie was that God has something better and He doesn't want you to have it. And the minute you start believing that lie, this is, this is what happens inside of us. And there's only one way to attack that, that root of bitterness and jealousy is to is to have it replaced with someone that will never leave or forsake you, right? You need something that's not going to disappoint you, Uh, a promise to believe in that amounts to every blessing that you can imagine for your life and more. And there's really only one such promise that will do that. It's the promise of the gospel. It comes from faith that Jesus Christ is sufficient, that we need nothing or no one else. that Jesus alone can satisfy the deepest desires of our heart. But I, I, want, you, I want to be clear about this because I know, I know that sometimes I know how that sounds. So let me be clear about what I mean when I say that Jesus is enough. All of the problems of this world are a result of what? Sin, Right? And so when I say that Jesus is enough, I mean that he is enough to solve each and every one of the problems that sin creates in us and in the world. He provides a way for us to be reconciled to God, right? So he offers us forgiveness and rest. He promises to renew our minds and our hearts and to make us holy. He promises to raise us from the dead. He promises that he will return and that he will live with us in peace and prosperity forever. And so I mean all of that when I say that Jesus is enough. So I want to be clear about that. But but what does life look like practically for a person who believes that Jesus is enough? So very briefly, what I want us to think about, we're almost done, from, from Simeon and Anna, we learn that you start to live a life of worship, waiting, and witness. Worship, waiting, and witness. Both of them demonstrate spirit-filled worship of God in the temple. Both of them offer thanks to God. Both of them demonstrate dependence on God through prayer. And so if Jesus is enough, humbly, I would suggest to you, we will attend physical worship because our best link to Jesus until he returns is through the gathered worship of the church. This is where he promises to be. Just as they were waiting in the temple, we wait together in the church. Second, if Jesus is enough, then our lives are also characterized by waiting. Both Simeon and Anna are waiting to meet the promised Messiah. And as I've said, we are also waiting on something. We're waiting on Jesus to return. And when he does, all wars, all tears, all deaths, all hurts, it will all end it will all be done it will all be gone and so my question for us is does our lives do our lives mirror the type of waiting that we see the whole new testament encouraging us to are we expectant are we anticipating the coming of the lord jesus can other people tell that that matters to us And I want to lovingly, I want to say to you, if, if you don't find in yourself ever this longing for Jesus to return, then very likely you have been busy insulating yourself from the suffering of this world through temporary pleasures. Because if you felt the acuteness of what sin has done to this world and to you, then you are desperate for him to come back. If you don't feel that, then you're insulating yourself. You're refusing to see it. So we worship and we wait. And finally, if Jesus is enough, then we will bear witness to his sufficiency. We will want others to know that we have found the only thing that we really need, and we want them to have it and to need it too, right? Simeon and Anna were witnesses of the Messiah's birth, but it was not just given to them for their own sake, was it? It was given to be shared with all who were looking forward to the redemption that Jesus would bring. And Luke makes a point to highlight that for us. And so my encouragement to us as a church is that together, we make this year a year of worship, a year of waiting, and a year of witness. In other words, let's be the crazy old people who won't leave the temple until they see Jesus, who can't wait to tell people about Him. Amen? Let's pray. Gracious Lord Jesus, fairest of all, we rejoice in your birth, we rejoice in your life, your death, your resurrection. Pray that you would help us to see ourselves and this world as it is, that you would help us to, to put away all the things that we've been chasing to, to self-medicate and to, to insulate ourselves from the suffering that we might experience the mourning and the tears and the pain, not without hope, but with expectancy, that we know that You're coming back and we know that You're enough. And Father, it's crazy if we stop to think about it. If we really are people who believe the promises of the Bible, man, there's so much to rejoice in. And the only reason we wouldn't is because of sin and doubt. Say, Father, wake us up. Encourage our hearts. Bring us closer together. Protect us from the enemy. Help us to love you and to love one another. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together in a